Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 this morning. And uh, the title of our message is Impacting the World for Jesus Christ. Impacting the World for Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Please follow along with me as I begin reading Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Oh, our father, as we turn to your word now, we ask that you would continue to Help us to worship you, tune our hearts and minds to hear your truth. Lord, as we continue in this worship service by looking to your word, we pray that you would transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, that you would use this passage to help us to be more like you would want us to be. We thank you, Father, for your grace, for Jesus Christ, for the amazing, incomparable gift that you have given this world by sending your son to live a perfect life and die on the cross as a substitute for those who had trusted him. We thank you for him as we especially remember his birth this time of year, but help us to remember it every day, Father. We thank you for your goodness and grace towards us. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Well, I first would like to say that I feel really privileged to be here this morning, and I feel privileged to partner with you all as a missionary. I serve in uh, Africa. My wife and I and our four children live in Malawi, Africa, and we are pastoring there, and I teach at a Bible college, and we are church planting uh, in, in the church that I'm pastoring and in other churches as well. We've started planted one church uh, in the past two years besides the one I'm pastoring. So um, it is a privilege to be there and to partner with you all as you are generous with your missions budget here at the church and have brought us on the past couple of years. We just feel like a, a real a kinship with this congregation and we're just excited to be partnering with you. I wanted to preach on impacting the world for Jesus Christ because 
As we think about our purpose here on this planet, uh, what was important to Christ, it's easily, uh, it's easy to get distracted, you know, this time of year, especially uh, with holidays and family and people and gatherings and, but to really focus on what's important, to keep the right balance uh, in our own lives and in the church. You know, over the past 150 years, there has been a phenomenal movement in the United States. It's a movement which has involved the entire Christian community and has affected nearly every nation around the world. I'm talking about the foreign missionary movement. Today in the United States, it's common to go to a church and hear them talk about missionaries. You'll find uh, over uh, on the wall over there, uh, uh, a uh, on the other side of that wall over there, you'll find uh, cards with pictures of missionaries that this church uh, supports and partners with and and I, and sends out to, to all over the world some some churches you walk into and they've got a a, a map and they've got a pin with their where their church is at and they've got other pins all over the world and yarn connecting their church with all these other places and they say go into all the world and preach the gospel these kind of verses it's common for to walk into people's homes and they'll have prayer cards of missionaries and they'll be on their refrigerator or they'll, they'll share them with their children and have them pray for them it, it's common common to um, have, uh, in fact, it would be uncommon to find a church in America that didn't have an interest in foreign missions today. But that was not true 150 years ago. In the mid-1800s, it was uncommon for churches in America to talk about foreign missions. Rarely did missionaries visit churches in America to give reports of their service abroad. There were no uh, photographs or uh, pencil sketches of foreign missionaries that people keep on their ice boxes in their homes. The idea that a young person in a church here in America might be praying about someday becoming a foreign missionary was probably about as unlikely as a young person in a church praying about becoming an IT specialist in the mid-1800s. However, in the late 1800s, There began a movement of international missions in the United States. And one example of that movement is an organization that was formed in 1888 called the Student Volunteer Movement, SVM. It was a movement that was formed by university students who were involved. Many of them were involved in the YMCA, but they had a desire for world evangelization. And so they started uh, with a small group of college students who began praying for people all over the world who hadn't heard the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the news that Jesus Christ had come into this world, a world that is filled with sin, a world where we are all sinners, a world where the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. It says in Ezekiel that the soul of him who sins must die. And so we, we know that the Bible teaches if you sin, you deserve eternal punishment, damnation in hell. This is what the Bible teaches. And yet there is a way of salvation. There is a way to be forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. And that is through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And therefore, since the wages of sin is death and he never sinned, he never had to die. He never, his life was never demanded of him for his own sin. He gave his life willingly as a sacrifice or as a substitution to pay for the sins of those who would trust in him. That is the good news, that your, your sins can be cleansed, that you can be washed, that you can stand before God boldly and worshiping Him and knowing Him. 
because of not of any work of your own or good deed of your own, but because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who was raised from the dead, who stands there praying and interceding for those who have trusted in him. That's the good news. That's the message that is to be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, I urge you this day to repent of your sins and trust in him. There are people after this service over here on the right who are, would love to be pray with you. If you're not sure about where you stand with a holy God who will not tolerate sin. But as I think about this movement this desire to preach that gospel throughout the whole world. I think of that movement in particular because there has never been, there was never, nor there has there ever been a movement that has sent out so many missionaries. That one movement spread to different colleges and had big conferences and they sent out more than 20,000 missionaries. Not only that, but there were 80,000 more university students who committed themselves to support those 20,000 who went out. This was a massive movement in this country to impact the world for Jesus Christ. And what is most astonishing to me as I have been reading about this movement and, and learning more about this movement is not the great number of people that went out, but that it lasted for such a short time. Its peak years really lasted less than 40 years. And as I read books that, that tell us why it died out, one of the reasons given is because it got off track. It lost its focus. It began to focus not on world evangelization, but it began to focus on physical needs. The social gospel was a movement within the church that was more concerned with solving problems in society than it was with preaching Christ as the only way of salvation. And they began to began to focus on on uh, issues like poverty and race relations. The war, World War One was coming on. Uh, imperialism was an issue of those days. Those were side issues that distracted preaching a gospel of salvation through Christ alone. And in the end, because their efforts did not have the right focus, their efforts were weakened. And I believe we face the same dangers today. I was, uh, I was, uh, I pastored for eight years in Johannesburg, South Africa. I'm now up in Malawi, two countries north of South Africa. But while I was in South Africa, I remember one young man who had come to Christ, uh, a South African man came to me one day and he said, pastor, um, can you tell me what a missionary is? And I thought, uh, this seems like a basic question, but he's a young believer. I, but I said, why do you ask? He said, the reason I'm asking is because I have met so many people who call themselves missionaries and I can't figure out what they have in common. <laughs> it began to get me thinking that maybe there are a lot of people out there calling themselves missionaries, but aren't really doing true missionary work. Just to, just to get a, big, a, a, help, a helpful picture of that, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. A missionary is someone who is sent out to help fulfill the Great Commission. Now, what is this Great Commission? Jesus said to his disciples, this is, this is the high point of the book of Matthew. In fact, uh, in John MacArthur's commentary on this, you know, MacArthur spent eight years preaching through the, the book of Matthew, and uh, he got to this passage. He says, not only is it the pinnacle of the book of Matthew, but he suggested it's the pinnacle of the whole New Testament. And it wouldn't be an understatement to say that this is the high point of the whole Bible. The Great Commission, Jesus commissioning his disciples to go out and make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples. It says in Matthew 28, verse 
19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, in, 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 in verse 18 and, and, uh, sorry, verse 19 and the first part of verse 20, if you want to know what the heart of that commission is, you look for the action words. Action words are verbs. Remember from English grammar class, verbs are action. And so you look for the verbs. You want to know what the, what the movement is, what the heart of the verse is? Look for the verb. This is basic, uh, uh, hermeneutics. This is biblical interpretation. You're looking for verbs. Verbs are very important. And here, there's only one verb. Now, sometimes we say, well, maybe go is a verb, but that's actually a participle. And teaching is a participle and baptizing is a participle. The verb here is make disciples. Make disciples. It's one word in the original. And the idea is that you're to go and make disciples. That's what he wanted his disciples to do. And how are they to do that? Well, participles help us because participles show action, but they also describe. They're like verb adjectives. Verbal adjectives. And so a participle, an ing word usually, like teaching, baptizing, those describe how you make disciples. To make a disciple doesn't mean that you go somewhere and you preach the gospel and you leave. To make a disciple means that you're involved in baptizing, baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ has commanded them. So great commission work really needs to have those elements with it, if it's going to truly fulfill the Great Commission. And if there's someone out there who's involved in uh, mercy ministry that is not involved with baptizing or teaching, then they're not really fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, I don't want to discount mercy ministry. We had uh, four homes for abandoned HIV babies at our church in Johannesburg. And we looked after uh, uh, 24 babies um, we had more than a, about a hundred babies come through our home and most of them, uh, were adopted out after they lost their HIV status by taking antiretroviral drugs. It's amazing how caring for a baby, uh, who, who has HIV, uh, oftentimes carrying the mother's antibodies loses that status and can be adopted, but it would, would not lose the status without the drugs that are available today. It's phenomenal. And that's a mercy ministry. But the right place for a mercy ministry like that is coming out of a local church that is baptizing and teaching. That is a balance that we need. Now, we come back to our passage in Acts chapter 6. I think that this is a fantastic passage for us as we're considering how to impact the world for Jesus Christ. Because this was a church that started with 12 people. And it grew to impact the entire world for Jesus Christ. At the time of Acts chapter 6, the church was about 20,000 people. It says the last count was there were about 5,000 men in the church. So probably a low estimate would have been about 20,000 people in the church in Jerusalem. The church had not spread outside of Jerusalem, but it was growing. And it was just about to impact the entire world. It was going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see that it did that without losing focus and with keeping the right balance. And it did not neglect these mercy ministries or physical needs, but it had the right perspective on them. So as we come to this passage, we will see in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we will see three marks of a local church that kept the right focus on Jesus Christ, or three marks of a local church that was prepared to impact the world for Jesus Christ. And as we come to this passage, keep in mind that we also want to be a congregation here in Burbank 
that is able to impact the world for Jesus Christ. The first mark of a local church that's keeping the right focus on Jesus Christ is it is a congregation that serves. It has a congregation that serves one another, a congregation that serves one another. Take a look at verses one through three and also verses five and six. It says in Acts chapter six, verse one. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. I'll stop there. That's verse one. This was a time where the church was increasing in number, as I've already mentioned, and surely it was. But there was a problem at the opening of Acts chapter 6. The issue that was at hand was that some of the widows were being overlooked. To help us understand this, we need to get a grasp on the fact that there were two language groups in the same church. If you can imagine that this church had two different language groups, let's say everybody on this side was Italian and spoke Italian, and everyone on this side was Hungarian. And uh, you spoke Hungarian. And besides the fact that we'd be one church here that had great potlucks with excellent food, there would be some issues because your, 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 your home languages would be different. And in the early church, the church in Jerusalem, they were mostly made up of Jews. Some of them were proselytes or converts to Jews because the, the gospel went out to the Jew first and then to the Greek, right? And on the day of Pentecost, there were many Jews who were there as pilgrims. And remember some of them in Acts chapter 2 who heard Peter's sermon and came to Christ that day were from nations all over the world. It says in Acts chapter 2 that there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. There were 15 different nations mentioned there. They say, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God, their own languages. What was happening was that there were some people who were there who were obviously they had lived in Palestine their whole life and Hebrew was their primary language. And they were Jews who prided themselves in the Hebrew scriptures. They worshiped in, in, in uh, temples that had uh, uh, that used a, a synagogues that used the Hebrew manuscripts. But when we had this other group of people that were also of Jewish descent, but had been dispersed all over for various reasons, some of them chose to, some of them were forced to, and uh, they were living in different areas and would come back on pilgrimages to Palestine and Jerusalem. And some of them, especially when they're elderly, came back and retired there. There was a deep love for that city, for Jerusalem. But... They had grown up in other parts of the world and had languages, the trade language they would have spoken, even they had local little languages, would have been Greek. And they were more familiar with the Greek Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, rather than the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament. And they actually worshipped in synagogues that had the Septuagint as their, uh, as their translation of God's word. So you had these two groups now, many of them coming to Christ from both groups. You have a church all coming together and they are uh, using scriptures that were written primarily in Greek, uh, the language, primary language of that day by the apostles and those under the apostles. And they were being shepherded by the apostles, but they were from these two different backgrounds. And there was a conflict because those were from the, those, the Hebraic Jews, those were, had a, a Hebrew language. Their widows were being looked after, but those who were the, the, the Jews who were Greek-speaking, their widows were being neglected. You can imagine the tension of these Hungarian uh, widows over here. I mean, if your mom's not being looked after and other ladies are looked after in the church, that's going to be an issue. You're going to come to church and you are not going to be happy about it. It's going to be heart-wrenching and you're going to want to try and find out, hey, what's the, how come you know our ladies are not being looked after? 
right? We're all giving into the same common plate. People were laying down, selling pieces of land and leaving the money at the apostles' feet. And now some of the widows were being overlooked. Notice that the apostles did not say, well, mercy ministries are not important. Physical needs are not important. They did not say, why are we feeding all these widows anyways? Let's let the government do that. Let's not worry about reaching out to our local community. They did not say, okay, if you can't get along, nobody gets any food anymore. (laughs) Caring for physical needs is important, but the church leaders need to keep a proper balance in this issue. They cannot be sidetracked and have that become the most important issue. Physical needs cannot be the most important issue in the church. So what they said in verse three is select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task. Notice five characteristics there in verse three, five characteristics of, of Christian members of the church who they thought would be good individuals, right people to look after this. First of all, they wanted people who were had, they wanted male leadership, male leadership. They wanted seven men. I find that interesting. This obviously has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. It's not that women couldn't do it. In fact, if there was ever a time in the church where you thought, hey, what a perfect women's ministry looking after older women. I mean, it involves food and women are great with food and involves looking after elderly women. And that's totally relational. Women are good at that. I was uh, I was a youth pastor. when I was in seminary and uh, I remember one day we had a question and answer time with a bunch of uh, junior hires. We call them pre people, a um, 12 to 14. And uh, they were, they were out there in the junior high room. And we had a question and answer time where they could ask any question. And one girl raises her hand and she says, my parents told me I could be whatever I want to be when I grow up. And uh, you guys, it seems like they're, I, you're saying I can't be a pastor. So why do my parents tell me I could be whatever I want to be? And you're telling me from the Bible that only men could be pastors. And uh, uh, I wasn't answering the question. I actually happened to be a volunteer and he answered it beautifully. He said he totally diffused the situation. He said, well, it's because the Bible teaches that boys are better than girls. And you can imagine these 12 year old boys. Yeah, this was exciting for them to uh, to hear. And then everybody said, no, we know that's not true. And we talked about how Galatians 5 does teach us that, you know, there's there's neither male nor female where there's no inequality when it comes to God's looking down, God looking down on you. But there are different roles, right? We know that it says in Ephesians that uh, that the husband is to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. One time, Elizabeth Elliot was actually debating a woman who called herself a Christian feminist. And she actually said, uh, the feminist said that it doesn't matter who the leader is in the home is as long as there is a leader. The woman could be the leader or the man could be the leader in the home. God doesn't care who it is as long as it's one. And Elizabeth Elliot said something that was very interesting. She said, you know, uh, if you look at that passage in Ephesians 5, where it says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, it's a parallel passage. There are two statements that are parallel. And if you're going to switch the first side around, you have to be able to switch the second time around, side around. So if you're going to say that the woman could be the head of the husband, the wife could be the head of the husband, just as the, you'd have to also say as the church is the head of Christ. And that wouldn't work. So we know that men have a high calling as being leaders in the home. They have a high calling as leaders in the church. 
But even in an area of meeting physical needs, God doesn't let men off the hook and say, well, just let the women take care of physical needs. This is important to him. And even in the early church, they chose seven men, which is a reminder to all of us men that we need to be as observant as our wives and looking out for other people who are in need and as compassionate as the women in the church are and as active as the women in the church are in helping to minister to the needs around us. That's one characteristic in verse three. Another characteristic that they were looking for was not only male leadership, they're looking for local servers. They said from among you, from among you. Not that there were any other Christian churches they could have chosen from because that was the one church in Jerusalem. But it's a reminder to us that, you know, we shouldn't automatically when we have a need in the church say, hey, where can we look for someone to come and help fix this problem or fill this gap? Churches should be producing people who are able to fill the gaps that are needed from among you. So I like that, that they were looking for six from among you. Not only were they looking for male leadership, local leadership, but they're also looking for upright leadership. Those people of good reputation because integrity was important for this job as it is for every Christian area of service. And these men would be entrusted with large amounts of money, presumably, to help take care of these people. And so there would have to be accountability and transparency and responsibility. And so they were looking for men of, who were upright, of good reputation. Not only male leadership, local leadership, upright leadership, but spirit-filled leadership. They were looking for spirit-filled services, full of the Holy Spirit. To help us understand what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit, if you did a a study on on, uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit, you would come to a passage in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5.18, that says, Be not drunk with wine, which is is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I like that passage to help me understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit because there's a contrast there. And I've seen what it looks like on one side of the contrast. You see people who are drunk with wine. They are influenced by the spirit that is in them, right? Or the spirits that are in them. They are influenced by that. They, they are controlled by that. They cannot do what they would want to do or what they're instructed to do or what they might naturally want to do. If, if a policeman pulls them over and tells them to walk a straight line with their arms up to the sides, they have a difficult time doing that because... They are influenced or controlled by that. And the Bible says, do not be controlled or filled. Do not be filled. Do not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you are in a situation and you have, you're trying to do something, don't do what you naturally would want to do in your human mindset, but do what the Spirit of God would have you do. Live your life in a way that is so sensitive to the Spirit's leading that you always do what the Spirit of God would have you to do. And when you're living your life following and doing what Christ would have you do or what God would have you to do or what the Holy Spirit would have you to do, you are being filled with the Holy Spirit. You're being influenced or controlled by the Holy Spirit. That gives us a picture, an idea of what that means. And they were looking for people who were sensitive and following God's Spirit. And really, Stephen is probably the key guy here. And we learn more about him throughout chapter 6 and in chapter 7. A man who took an opportunity when he was confronted by the Sanhedrin to preach God's word to them. To do, not try and weasel his way out of it and preserve his own life. But no matter what, he proclaimed, he did what the Holy Spirit would do. And he thought about them and their need for salvation. Not only 
male leaders, local leaders, upright leaders, spirit-filled leaders, but wise leaders. It says full of wisdom. They must know the scriptures. They must know how to apply them. I want to point out something really beautiful in verse five, because I'm convinced that if we were, you know, in our democratic society, that if we had a problem like this, remember with the Hungarians and the Italians, and we said, we need a committee to help us look after this, that we would say, okay, let's get three Italians and let's get three Hungarians and let's put them on a committee, right? And we would have different, each group would nominate their own. But I want to point out to you that in this, these, this list of seven names that we don't find Hebrew names. Hebrew names like we're familiar with, like David, David, or Yeshua for Joshua, or Yaakov for Jacob. We don't find those kind of names. In fact, every name mentioned in this list is a Greek name. Take a look at verse 5. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephanos, or Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas. A proselyte from Antioch. Nicholas was not even of Jewish descent. Now, during that time, it would have been possible. And we know that there were some Hebraic Jews who used their Greek names. So it's possible that some of these were Jews. But the context seems to apply. And many commentators would agree that these are all Greek names. And if that was the case, if they chose this, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of a church that was united and solidified and committed to glorifying Christ in the way they served one another. They said, oh, there's a problem. There's a problem with some who are being overlooked. Well, let's choose godly men to be overseeing this issue. And let's choose men who are very familiar with those who are being overlooked, who know the language, who are from that culture. Isn't that beautiful? It's a a sweet reminder to us. That it's not about our rights and us and who we are. It's it's about Christ and him being glorified. It's about a church that people looked at as they did the, the early church during the time of Tertullian, who lived from 160 to 220 AD, who said this about Christians. He noted this, behold how they love one another and how they are ready to die for one another. That's what people outside of the church were saying about Christians in the church. They saw this Church is a place that, behold, can you imagine if your neighbors said, boy, those people at Calvary Bible Church, it is unbelievable how they love one another. Now you can see how this church is gearing up to impact the entire world for Jesus Christ because it has resisted certain attacks. It has resisted resisted sin within the church with Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter 5. It had resisted persecution with uh, the the apostles being arrested. And and now it's resisting internal strife, a potential to really split the church. And people just says, not my will, but thy will be done. It was a beautiful picture of a church that was ready to impact the world for Jesus Christ. But there's a second ingredient or mark that's essential for a congregation to have if they are going to truly impact the world for Jesus Christ. And that is they need a leadership that cares, a leadership that cares, not only a congregation that serves, but a leadership that cares. Take a look at the end of verse 2 and verse 4. It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, this is what the 12 said. It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Down in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Sometimes you'll hear people describe their pastor 
and you say, hey, tell me about your pastor. And they say, well, and now you know you're, you're going to hear both good and bad, right? When they start out saying, well, they say, he's, um, he's a really good pastor, but he's not much of a preacher. Sometimes they say things like that. Or other times they'll say, oh, well, he's a fantastic preacher, but he's not a really good pastor. You know, that's really a false comparison. It's not a biblical comparison. Because a pastor is a shepherd. The terms actually pastor, elder, uh, th- those are used interchangeably in the scripture. Elders are people who shepherd the flock. They look after the flock. And if they are going to shepherd them in a caring way, then they must be a good, they must be good preachers and teachers of God's word. The equipping of the saints, according to Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, is through these pastor teachers. The way we are equipped is through, here's, here's the mindset, here's the philosophy of ministry. The more you understand as a congregation, the deeper you understand the word of God, the better you're going to be able to apply it to your life, and the more mature you will be in Jesus Christ. Now that is, it seems like a simple philosophy of ministry, but it is not a common one in this nation. People have really shortening the time given to the word because they think that other things will bring maturity, obviously, or they've forgotten about this. They don't have the right focus. You cannot be a good leader in a church. You cannot be a good pastor, a good shepherd, if you are not feeding the flock. You'd be, it'd be like a, a physical shepherd who is neglecting to give food to his sheep, but he's really caring and everything like that. Right? How can he be a good shepherd? In fact, Charles Jefferson, the Puritan, a Puritan who wrote a book on shepherding, he said this, no part of a pastor's work is more strictly, genuinely pastoral than the work of preaching. When the minister goes in the pulpit, he is a shepherd in the act of feeding. Sermons, rightly understood, are primarily forms of food. They are articles of diet. They are meals served by the minister for the sustenance of spiritual life. And I would suggest to you that the best way your pastors and your church leaders can care for you are to, are to plumb the depths of the word of God and bring them up and share them in a way that you can digest them and apply them to your own life. And if they do that, and then they must pray for you because they're devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the implication here is that the prayer is sometime associated with, somehow associated with that ministry of the word. They are praying for you, not just as we pray for one another, but they are especially praying that the way the word is applied to your life impacts your life and the world for Jesus Christ. It was John Calvin who said this, we must always remember that we shall lose all our labor bestowed upon plowing, sowing, and watering unless the increase comes from heaven. Shepherds need to make sure that they are praying for their congregations that the word of God might dwell in them richly. I love the combination in this congregation, the combination in the Acts chapter 6 church, the combination we have between uh, the importance on ministering to physical needs, but also the priority of ministering to the spiritual needs, keeping that focus and balance. Some people don't get that. Some churches today are more concerned about physical needs. Some missionaries today are devoted to physical needs and they're neglecting spiritual needs. 
But as you go through scripture, you will find admonition after admonition, especially to pastors, to feed people the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And we see that today. I want to encourage you this day to continually pray for your leaders that they will keep the focus. It's, it's difficult. You're on an elder board. An issue comes up. It's an important issue, like somebody's being neglected or something like that. And if too much of their effort gets sidetracked and they get, seem to get focused more on uh, needs that are not word-related, then they really can get distracted in their leadership. But we see this example of this early church that was focused and balanced. There was a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary who more than 20 years ago wrote this. He said, the great need across evangelicalism is the exposition of the scriptures. I sense there is a departure from that even among some of our own grads who are entertaining the people, giving the people what they want, whereas we are called to teach the word. It is the word that is the power of God to salvation. It is the word that is the power for Christian living. And I would want to make them... I would want them to make the word of God the center of their ministry. It may not be popular. It may not build mega churches, but it will fulfill that to which they are called upon to do in ministry. And the apostles were devoted to the ministry of word and to prayer. But we had a third ingredient in our passage here this morning, a third ingredient, third mark of the church that's going to impact the world for Christ. Not only a congregation that serves, not only a leadership that cares, but thirdly, a church that testifies to the lost. That is the leadership and the congregation together testifying to the lost. And we see that in verse 7. It says in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You see that this is beautiful because it's natural. It's just happening. This congregation cares for each other so much and they're being fed so much the word of God. Their lives are being transformed so much that it's natural for them to go out and tell the others, you wouldn't believe what's going on in my life. I was talking to, to Jack Hughes about uh, this issue of preparing people to testify to the lost. And he was telling me about a phrase that he uses quite frequently or occasionally from the pulpit, uh, dropping the bomb. Have you heard him say, drop the bomb, right? Don't forget to tell people about Jesus Christ, that they're lost, that they, they have no hope without him, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him, Right? That if you, if you are kind to the person and kind to the person and kind to the person their whole life, but never drop the bomb, that is talk to them about Jesus Christ, something that will may cause them to scatter or flee, that you're not really caring for them adequately. Well, it's easier to drop that bomb when that bomb has exploded your life and your world. And people say to you, what is going on in your life? And they say, you know, they say, you wouldn't believe that my friend who goes to Calvary Bible Church and the way they care for one another and love one another. And when you talk to them, you say, you know, you wouldn't believe what I'm learning about the word of God, stuff I never imagined. And it's causing me to grow. And issues that I used to be so uptight about, 
are now over. I'm able to forgive so much more easily because I see myself and how much I've been forgiven and I don't want to be an unmerciful servant. Is a, in Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, the book by J.I. Packer, where he says this quote, he says, whenever I have the, whenever I have earned the right to choose the topic of conversation, I choose the topic of topics, Jesus Christ. And I really like that way that it's phrased. This is a book about the sovereignty of God, but he says, earned the right. In other words, there are, t- there are some people where it'd be, everyone would be totally awkward. I mean, we can do things that, that turn people off to Christ, right? We used to have a guy, I grew up in Seal Beach, just down the road here, just down the freeway. And we used to have a guy standing in front of our church on Sundays. And I'm not joking, this is true. He, he used to carry a box of matches. He didn't go to our church, but he just, you know, liked to stand in front of it. And as people would walk by, he would light a match and he would blow it out and he'd hold it under their nose. He'd smell that. That's what hell smells like. Right? It's true, right, that we can do things that, I mean, turn people off to Jesus Christ. Now, that's not just dropping the bomb. That, that's imploding the world. I don't know what that is. That is, but, uh, <laughs> for some people, it may only take a few minutes to earn that right to choose the topic of conversation. For other people, it might take five months. But if it's taking you five years to talk to someone about what you know they need to hear, you're probably neglecting that. You need to realize that if we're going to really impact the world for Jesus Christ, we need to testify to the loss. And that's what was happening here. But it happened so naturally. Verse 6 just is a natural outcome of this church, which is being fed so well and which was and which was serving each other so well. It says the word of God kept on spreading. uh, Luke is trying to communicate here. The proclaimed word was being preached in wider and wider areas of Jerusalem. You can't fake that kind of growth. It's natural. It happens when those other elements, those other marks of the church are in balance. And there's something really unexpected here in the end of verse 7. It says that a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Wow, isn't that beautiful? You know, it was uh, the high priest, Caiaphas, who caused so much problem. This wouldn't have been the high priests who later in chapter 7 killed one of these seven. He killed Stephen. But these would have been, uh, historians tell us that there were up to 8,000 priests in Palestine who wouldn't have been associated with those high priests or the Sanhedrin. They were, they were actually some priests that supported themselves. They often supported themselves with their own hands. They had little in common with the Sadducees. But they also had these titles, but they were more concerned with the truth than they were with their own prestige or titles. And so when they saw a church that was impacted by the word and they heard the word preached, their hearts melted and they themselves turned and followed Jesus Christ. Could have been maybe the Sanhedrin seeing these priests turn that caused them to step up the persecution and even kill Stephen. Wow. Well, I'm humbled by looking at this church because I know my own life as an individual, the church that I shepherd in Malawi. 
I know that this church here could all use this message. We look back at the way that the Spirit of God used this church, had a congregation that serves, a leadership that cares, and a church that testified to the lost. May God bless you as you continue to minister with the right focus and impact this world for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our time together this morning in your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that in this glimpse, this picture that we've seen in Acts chapter 6 of a church that you used, that you've been able to challenge our hearts with areas that we need to grow in and improve. And I pray for these people right here today that you would put it on their hearts to look for more needs within this congregation that they might be able to meet and serve. And I pray for the leadership of this church that they might find more ways to effectively communicate your truth. I pray for those who teach and preach from this pulpit that they might have the discipline to plumb the depths of your truth and accurately, passionately, and boldly and clearly proclaim your truth. We thank you, Father, for your grace that is upon us. You are to be praised. You are the great God over Israel. You are our Father. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Amen.